Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. Having received God's grace and the peace that comes with it, we are also reminded in our study today that God's love for us is everlasting. As we'll continue our study in Revelation chapter 1, Pastor Phil encourages believers to rest in this knowledge. Let's join him now to hear more. To the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. And as my beloved pastor Chuck has always said, this is the, these are the Siamese twins of the New Testament. Grace and peace. And they're always in that order, by the way. You can't experience God's peace until you first receive God's grace. And primarily, I'm thinking of salvation, which is a total gift of grace, a free gift that we receive by faith. But grace doesn't end there, does it? I mean, grace is a, the Greek word means a gift, something that God gives to you. It could be salvation. But how about the strength and the power to live every day for the Lord? That's a gift I need every day. And so it's more than just receiving from him my salvation. It's really receiving from him the strength that I need to live my life for him day by day. And when I experience God's grace in that way each day, then I have peace. That's the resulting calm that enables a believer to really face anything, persecution, sorrow, even death itself. Because I know, as Paul said in Romans, I think it was 5, that we stand in His grace. I'm standing in God's grace. I am just enveloped with His grace. I'm in Christ. And therefore, if I'm in God's grace, and He's surrounding me and he's just protecting and watching no matter what happens i can have peace because you know what my life is in his hands and as i said before before he's done with me i'm indestructible and when he says i'm finished with you phil then lord just come get me because nothing's going to keep me on this earth any longer so what am i worried about what am i worried about i have peace whatever the lord wants to do for me to live is christ and to die is gain that's the attitude we have to have as christians So, grace and peace. And then he said in verse 4, From him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, of course, that phrase, from him who is and who was and who is to come, just is John's way of talking about God being present in the past, in the present, and in the future all at the same time. God is the great I am. He's not the great I was or the great I will be. He's the great I am. He's always the great I am, which means he is always living in the eternal present tense. He he always is. In fact, it just speaks of an attribute of God that only God uh, possesses, by the way, that he's eternal. God never had a beginning, and he will never have an end. In fact, Moses in Psalm 90, verse 2, said, Before the mountains were brought forth... Psalm 90, verse 2, I should say. Uh, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Only God is eternal. 
I mean, angels, human beings, we were all created. And once created, we are now eternal in the sense that we'll live forever in some place, whether in heaven or in hell. As believers, of course, we know heaven because he's promised us eternal life if we put our faith in him. Angels also, once created, they were from that point eternal, and they will live forever in either one of two places. Of course, the faithful angels will live with God in heaven and all of us. And the fallen angels, those who followed Satan in his rebellion, we'll learn more about those in chapter 12. They will spend eternity in the lake of fire. And by the way, when Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire, he's not going to be ruling there. He's not the Lord of hell. He's going to be punished and tormented more than anybody else in hell. So Dante, Milton, all that stuff, that makes for some interesting writing, but it's not biblical. All right? Satan is not the Lord of hell. When he gets cast into hell, first of all, he has access to heaven right now. We, we learn that from the book of Job. He has access to heaven. He comes and goes in and out of heaven. That's going to come to an end in chapter 12. We're going to read about that. Anyway, he goes on to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, this has caused a lot of people to speculate who are these seven spirits. All right. Commentators are divided as to what is being talked about here. Uh, Are they seven individual spirits that are you know special forces spirits uh they hang out right by the throne and they do god's bidding you know and uh, green beret spirits i don't know i mean uh uh you know but they don't really know I, I personally think they're not really seven individual spirits but really the sevenfold ministry of the holy spirit seven again being the number of completeness or perfection uh isaiah 11 verse 2 talks about the sevenfold ministry of the holy spirit We read in chapter 3, verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God. Now, that doesn't help us too much. gives us a little more. But here's why I believe it's talking about the Holy Spirit. Because we see the entire Trinity mentioned in verse 4 and then at the beginning of verse 5. John said, Grace to you and peace from him who is and was Uh, who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. And from the seven spirits, I believe that's the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. So for me, and I don't know if this is going to help you in your walk at all, but, uh, you know, uh, as a teacher, I like to nail these little things down, and I just feel like these seven spirits, it really is a reference to the Holy Spirit, uh, the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, and uh, because he is, uh, it's mentioned with the Father and the Son, which, of course, the whole Trinity is, is then talked about. But verse 5, where he says, And from Jesus Christ, first of all, the faithful witness. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. A witness testifies to what they have seen, correct? You witness something, a crime, they bring into court, and you share what you saw. You testify what you witnessed, all right? Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. Who is he testifying of? Well, there's a story I heard several years ago about a little kindergartner named Johnny. And uh, Johnny was um, in uh, kindergarten class one day, and 
the uh, kindergarten teacher said to the students, uh, students, uh, pull out a piece of paper and draw anything you want. And so the kids got out the paper and they're drawing away, you know, and little Johnny's drawn with a little tongue to the side. You know, he's drawn away and the teacher's walking up and down the aisle looking at the children's pictures. And she comes to Johnny. Johnny's got his head down. He's drawn away. And teacher says, Johnny, what are you drawing? He says, I'm drawing a picture of God. Really? Well, she said, well, Johnny, nobody's ever seen God. No, nobody knows what he looks like. Johnny answered without even looking up or missing a beat. He says, well, they will when I'm finished. (laughs) Well, that's cute. But in John chapter 1, verse 18, John said, no one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him where the Greek has made him manifest. He's revealed to us the Father. Now, in the upper room the night before uh, Jesus was to be crucified, he um, was talking to his disciples one last time, giving them a little going away speech. And at one point, um, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. And Jesus responds to Philip, have I not been with you so long that you asked me such a question? Have you seen me? You've seen the Father, for I and my Father are one. If you want to know what God is like, God the Father, look at Jesus. You know, the Jews got a very lopsided impression of God because they tried to relate to God through legalism, you know, commandments, rules, which they broke quite often. And because of it, they kept seeing the judgment of God, the wrath of God, so they got an impression, and of course we read in the, in the Bible how that when the law was given to Moses on Sinai, the mountain quaked violently. God's voice so thundered, it was like this incredible noise. The people were terrified. That was their concept of God. And so they grew up thinking that God was this wrathful, red-eyed, vengeful being that you didn't want to you know, upset in any way. Very few people, even though God did reveal himself in the Old Testament as a God of love, they didn't really relate to him quite that way. So when Jesus started talking about calling the father Abba, which means daddy, this, for a Jewish person, this blew you away. Daddy? God? Call him daddy? I don't think so. Jesus says, well, no, he's your father. You're, you're like these little children. He wants you to relate to him that way. But when Jesus came, not only did he come to die for our sins, of course, but he came to give us a true picture of what the Father was really all about. And I love that. If you have any questions about how God really is, look at Jesus. If you think God is in heaven just waiting to smash you for every little mistake or sin you commit, look at Jesus. The woman caught in the very act of adultery. Well, the Pharisees had the rocks ready to let her have it. And Jesus said, you know, He who was without sin cast the first stone. And they finally all took off. And she said, you know, he said to her, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, well, I guess I have none. He said, neither do I accuse you, but go and sin no more. Very patient, very kind, very loving. This is the heart of our God. And so Jesus was the faithful witness. He faithfully demonstrated what God was really like. In fact, in John 17, the night before, again, I think he was... um, Uh, Just before they reached the Mount of Olives, he prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17. 
He starts off by saying, Father, I have manifested your name to the people of this world. I have revealed you, Father, faithfully, because he was the faithful witness. So he's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Now the cults jump on this, all right? And they say Jesus was the first creation of Jehovah. And they point to verses like this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, which says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And they say, well, there it is. He was the first created thing, and then He created everything else. And that's Jehovah's Witness doctrine, and I think maybe some others believe that. But uh, the Greek word here is prototokos, firstborn, prototokos. It can mean first in chronological order, It says that Mary brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Yes, Jesus was first of her children. But that word really most of the time means first in rank or first in the sense of superior position. We we read in the Old Testament how that Joseph, the son of Jacob, had two sons himself, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh was the firstborn, chronologically. Yet in Jeremiah 31, verse 9, God calls Ephraim my firstborn. Because God had singled out Ephraim, probably because of his heart, Manasseh probably was not a spiritual man, like Esau was not a spiritual man. And so Jacob was, uh, was born after Esau, but Jacob was the favored one. He was God's firstborn in the sense that he was the favored of the two. And so Ephraim was... The firstborn in the sense of preeminence. Um, how about we think of, of our first lady, Laura Bush? Wonderful lady, right? She's called the first lady. That doesn't mean she's the first lady that ever lived. doesn't mean that she's the first wife that ever lived in the White House or married to a president. It means first in the sense of her position. She is the preeminent lady of this country. She has a favored position. Well, twice in the New Testament, Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. He was not the first one to be resurrected from the dead, by the way. I mean, there was, uh, in the Old Testament, several people were resurrected from the dead. We have, before Jesus died and was raised, we have the widow of Nain's son who was raised from the dead. We have Lazarus who was risen from the dead. But he was the firstborn from the dead, never to die again. So he was the firstborn of a new order. Now, Paul says, because he rose from the dead never to die again, he's the first fruits of all those who have put their faith in him. And because Jesus rose from the dead never to die again, it guarantees that someday we will also be raised from the dead never to die again. He's the prototokos. He's the preeminent one. We talk about those firstborn from the, the firstborn from the dead. And yet every one of us is going to follow him in that we are all going to be resurrected from the dead someday. Now, again, verse 5. And so he's the faithful witness, he's the firstborn from the dead, and he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. And this is a progression here. During his earthly ministry, he was a faithful witness. Of course, he died when he went to the cross, and the third day he rose again, never to die again. And he is coming back again someday to rule over this earth. We'll finish verse 5. And to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. 
The blood of Jesus Christ is a very important thing to us. It's not a symbol. It really did accomplish something pretty profound. In the Old Testament, God taught his people in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. He said, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar. He's talking about animal sacrifices. I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for the soul. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And then Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sins. Look, we sinned, and sin brings death. The soul that sins shall surely die. That is a law of God. Yet God loved us so much, He didn't want us to die, so He sent His Son to die in our place. And churches today that want to downplay the blood of Christ, I told you, I told you about a pastor who came and took over a church, and not that long ago. And the worship leader on the Sunday this pastor started to lead this congregation, the worship leader had played several songs that talked about the cross and the blood. And after worship was done, after the service was done, the pastor came to this worship leader, he was furious, and said, if you ever play songs like that again, I'll fire you. That is way too negative. That is barbaric. We're, we, we're going to get past all that. Now, that's shocking. That's shocking. There's a, a book that has just come out by a so-called evangelical leader. This guy's not an evangelical. He's not a leader. He's an apostate, which basically mocks the atonement. And he says in this book, you're going to tell me that God killed and abused his own son on the cross? That's child abuse. For somebody else's sins? Come on, that archaic belief is what has caused many people not to join the church. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are seeing that we are in the end. When people in the church mock the atonement, when they think they consider the blood of Jesus Christ an unholy thing, even though Peter says we were redeemed by this precious blood, not like gold and silver, that's worthless. We were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what, I stand with William Coper in his beautiful hymn, There is a Fountain. And the words that go, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Amen. The last part of verse 5, and maybe your Bible translates it correctly, mine does not. But the last part of verse 5 should be translated, to him who loves, present tense, us, and washed us, past tense, from our sins in his own blood. Doesn't it comfort you to know that God's love for you and I is constant? It's eternal. I love what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31, verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. God's love for us is eternal. I mean, there's never going to come a point where God's going to stop loving me. Now, we sometimes think that's the case because we often fail to measure up to a level of holiness or goodness that we think we need to for God to keep on loving us. 
When Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God, we often think, oh, yeah, yeah I haven't kept myself in the love of God for a long time. Don't, don't misunderstand what Jude is saying. He is not saying keep yourself in a place where you're so cute and cuddly that God just can't help loving you. You're so good and so, you know, no. Jude is saying, look, basically God always loves you because God is love. It's his nature to love us, even when we blow it. But what Jude is saying when he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, he is saying, keep yourself in a place where God can demonstrate his love to you. I mean, I always love my kids. I don't care what they do. But if they're being rebellious and disobedient when they were little, I don't take them out for ice cream to reward that. But if they obey and they, you know, listen to what their mom and I have to say, no, I have no problem taking them out, buying some ice cream for them or, or giving them something to, to show my love. God is like that. God cannot bless rebellion, but he desires so much to bless his kids. So keep yourselves in a place where God can show his love to you. But I want you to just, I want to just stop here for just a minute, okay, and just look at this. To him who loves us and has washed us, the Greek word there, it could be translated washed. Some of your Bibles may translate it loosed. All right? It could mean either one. Interesting how this word is used in John chapter 13. Why don't you turn there? John chapter 13. I just want to show you something before we move on. Of course, John 13 is set in the upper, the background is the upper room. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, he and his disciples have gathered there to eat the Passover meal. And you, you understand that, you know, the Da Vinci painting of them all sitting at the table at the Last Supper, that's really not accurate. Uh, they didn't sit at a table in chairs. They reclined around a, uh, a flat table that sat on the ground, no legs. And there was, there was different kinds. There was a, a biclinium and a triclinium and a monoclinium. Uh, monoclinium just was just a block. Uh, by being two sides, a triclinium was a kind of a horseshoe-shaped table on the ground. And they would recline around this table on pillows, right on the ground, kind of leaning up on one arm. Well, of course, because they walked around on dirt roads and open sandals, you know, your feet weren't too far from somebody else's face. So whenever you came into a house to eat, uh, it was customary for the owner of the house to either supply a servant to wash your feet or at very least to have a basin of water and a towel there so you could either wash your own feet or if he was a humble man, he could wash your feet for you. Well, the disciples this night were arguing amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. This was a running argument that they had had all throughout his ministry. And of all nights, they're having it on this night. The, he's only a few hours from the cross. And he needs them now for the first time in his ministry to kind of comfort him a little bit. And here they are arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So he picks up a basin of water, pours it, excuse me, a pitcher of water, pours it in the basin, takes a towel, girds it around his waist, and kneels down and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, foot washing in that culture was reserved for the lowest of the servants. It was the most menial, the most degrading the most humiliating task a servant could do. And here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords 
kneeling down to wash their feet because they wouldn't wash each other's feet. Had they learned anything in three and a half years about humility and servanthood? The one who said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Had they not learned anything in those three and a half years? I'm wondering if Jesus thought that. Of course, the room grew quickly quiet as Jesus began to wash their feet. And he comes to Peter. And Peter is horrified and says, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And we pick it up around verse 8. Jesus answered him, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. You have no fellowship with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, I'll take a bath. If if it means I can't have fellowship with you, then I'll take a bath. But Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day.